You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God, pray that you would humble sinners and exalt the Savior by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit. For the sake of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Amen. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with uh, a false teaching in the church called the Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Gospel. Uh, According to the Prosperity Gospel, if you can gird up enough faith, then God will heal all your ailments, he'll make you successful, and he'll make you rich. But you've got to name it and claim it, because if you doubt it, you will go without it. There are uh, dozens of problems with this insidious false teaching that has victimized literally billions of people around the world. First, faith is not something that we use to control God. Uh, we live under God's control, not vice versa. Secondly, there are, there are not degrees of faith. It's not as if you have a ton of faith and God's going to bless you a lot, but if you only have a little faith, then God will only give you a little blessing. Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So this, the biblical problems of this evil false teaching are innumerable. Theologian John Piper once identified what he considered to be the greatest lie of the prosperity gospel. What he said is that the prosperity gospel proclaims that there is a greater treasure in the world other than Jesus himself. That there is something in this world, be that money or success or wealth, that can satisfy our souls more than a relationship with Christ. In 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, who had been sent to the church in Ephesus to clean up some false teaching. And in chapter 6, Paul reveals that some false teachers in Ephesus were using their faith as a means to get rich. Well, surprisingly, in that day, uh, by teaching lessons and preaching sermons, you actually could acquire quite a bit of wealth. And so Paul says in verse 5 that they viewed godliness as a means of financial gain. In other words, they were using their faith as a means to an end. They were using their spiritual gifts as a way to get wealthy. And in doing so, they demonstrated a belief that there is actually a greater treasure out there than Jesus himself. There is something beyond relationship with Christ that is actually better. And to these false teachers, that greater treasure was money. So we all, by our sinful nature, struggle with money. There is no more common collective idol in American culture than money. And I think for most of us, and I'm speaking from my own experience, are often seduced into believing that if we can just hit a certain financial threshold, then we will have contentment and peace and security and happiness. And this is a universal human struggle, as evidenced by the reality that the Bible talks about money as a temptation more than any other temptation in Scripture. The bigger issue below our sinful relationship with money is partially that our view of money is too high, but primarily that our view of Jesus is too low. And so today I want to talk about money and contentment in two parts. First, money as a false treasure. And second, Jesus as the true treasure. And what I want to demonstrate is that 
when you find your satisfaction in Christ, your concerns and your worries and your anxieties related to money starts to dissipate. So first, money as the false treasure. Now, Paul is very clear about the dangers of money in verses 9 and 10. He writes, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now listen to the intensity of this language. The desire to be rich is a temptation. It is a snare. It plunges people into ruin and destruction. It leads people away from the faith. It pierces people with many pangs. It is the root of all kinds of evils. And it's true. If you look at the most evil things in the world, war and murder, drug dealing, human trafficking, generally at the bottom of it all is usually greed and money. And something else that I would draw attention to is three words that are very similar. Desire to be rich. Love of money and craving. These are all words of longing from deep in the heart. And behind this love of money is a longing for something that we believe money will grant us. For some people, it may be status or validation or self-justification. For others, it might be happiness and contentment. For me, it's totally peace and tranquility. I think if I can hit a certain threshold, I'm not going to ever worry about money. Well, there is a famous trial lawyer named Dickie Scruggs who won massive settlements against tobacco companies. In one settlement, he personally brought home more than $300 million. In another settlement, uh, it was, he, would receive, he would receive $10 million a year for the rest of his life. But alas, after accumulating all of this wealth, he got busted twice for bribing a judge with the hope that he would get a better settlement and more compensation in other lawsuits. He was sentenced to seven years in federal prison. And at his sentencing, the judge, Glenn Davidson, imposed his sentence and quoted the Scottish philosopher William Barclay. He said, the Romans had a proverb that money is like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. And isn't that true? It's never enough. I can remember when I was a young adult thinking, if I make this much money, then I will never worry about money again. Well, then I got there. And then the needle moved. And it was, if I can get here, I'm never going to worry about money again. Well, now I make twice as much as that threshold. And let me tell you, I still worry about money. Unless you trust the Lord to provide for your needs, unless you find Christ as the source of your contentment, you're always going to want at least 20% more. It's never going to be enough. And here's the reason. Note in verse 17 how Paul writes, We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And this speaks to the reality that finances are finite. Our hearts long for something that is eternal and infinite. Our hearts long for God. And if we set our expectations for hope, peace, and contentment on anything finite, we are drinking salt water. 
When we center our lives on the accumulation of wealth, we're drinking salt water. We will always be empty and dissatisfied. Our thirst will not be quenched. And the more we drink, the more destructive and dark our behavior can become, and the more we can wander from what's truly important. We can wander from the faith and wander from our relationship with God, with family and friends. Contentment comes when we see Jesus as the highest good and the source of true satisfaction. And that takes us to our second point, Jesus as the true treasure. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul demonstrates a level of contentment that is enviable. He says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I don't know about you, but, but I'm always thinking about the next material need or the next savings threshold, right? The new landscaping in the yard or a master suite or getting a new car or saving for kids college or retirement or whatever it may be. Um, and again, I have this idea that I'm going to be content and at peace when I cross those thresholds. But Paul says, no, no. He says, if I know that my next meal is secure and I have a shirt on my back, then I'm good. I'm content. And I think when American Christians travel to the third world, uh, if you've ever traveled to Bolivia or to Rwanda, or for me it was Costa Rica, one of the biggest takeaways for American Christians is you see people who live in destitute poverty, where they really aren't necessarily secure on where their next meal is going to come from. And yet, for these people who love Christ, they see people who are happier and more joyful than anyone they've ever met. And it's baffling, it's baffling to us. Paul, uh, and so the question is, how do we come to this kind of contentment? And so first, Paul doesn't simply say flee, like run away from the temptation of money. He encourages us to pursue Christ as our treasure. And he says this in two ways. First, Paul encourages us to treasure Christ. In this passage, he proclaims the greatness of God. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who dwells in unapproachable light and who deserves all honor and eternal dominion. Paul refers to God as the one who gives life to all things, who alone has immortality. Jesus is the source of satisfaction and joy. Verse 12, he says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. He's encouraging us to embrace the eternal life that comes in relationship with Christ. Eternal life does not start when you enter heaven. Eternal life starts when you enter into relationship with Christ by repentance and faith. Paul makes clear that Jesus is the source of human flourishing and satisfaction. He expresses a similar sentiment in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The central spiritual blessing of heaven that makes heaven heaven is intimate fellowship with Christ. And so Paul is saying the key way to avoid the temptation of money is to pursue satisfaction in an intimate relationship with Christ. Now secondly, Paul exhorts Timothy and us to keep our minds set on it, on eternal service. With much earnestness, he writes, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, 
to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He charges Timothy to live a godly life and to be devoted to service of the kingdom. Now, I want to say, and in doing so, he invokes the devotion of Jesus to the gospel as an example. He says, Jesus, who in the face of death before Pontius Pilate, remained faithful to his call. So what he's pointing out is, is just how singularly focused Christ was on the mission of God and the service of the kingdom. He, Jesus was not concerned about material gain. Jesus was concerned about coming to be the Lamb of God who would die for the sins of the world. And so I want to say this with no judgment, because this is certainly true for me. But the default mode of most Americans is to concentrate life on financial security. Buy the house, pay the mortgage, max out the 401k. If things shake out well, buy a second home, remodel the kitchen, uh, retire at a reasonable age, travel while you have good health. That's the dream. And, and in a majority of circumstances, that's what drives the decisions and the energy of most Americans. And you can hear this quite often uh, with, with college students as they think about what I'm going to major in and the internships I'm going to do and all these kind of things. And generally what the concern is, is how can I make the most money? And I want to say that th there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing wrong with being blessed in that way. There's nothing wrong. In fact, it's a biblical thing to be financially responsible. Keep in mind that there were wealthy women that we see in the Gospel of Luke who funded Jesus' ministry with the disciples. In particular, there was Joanna, who was a wealthy woman. But keep in mind that her heart was centered on the kingdom. Her wealth was a vehicle through which she furthered the ministry of Christ. But the thing I want to say is that there is a much more meaningful life, an inspiring life on offer to all of us, when service to the kingdom and advancement of the gospel and being obedient to the call of God is the focus of our lives. So what Paul is conveying in both of these points is that the more you know Jesus and the more you know who he is and all of his beauty, all of his greatness, all of his majesty, and the more you pursue that relationship, the less consuming money will be. The more you center your life on serving Jesus, the less you are going to worry about finances. Because when you taste the goodness of Jesus, you start to realize just how unsatisfactory everything else is. And when you know the peace of the gospel, you start to see how little serenity anything beyond God can offer you. When you enjoy the lasting joy of Jesus, you see how limited money is. And when you have the hope and the security of heaven, you see how insecure financial security is. And so here's the utterly unique thing about this treasure that we find in Christ. I want you to think about how much effort we expend to earn a paycheck, how much we labor for money and financial security. The thing about the treasure, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, is that it is utterly free for you and me. It is a gift. It was costly for Jesus. He labored every second of his life to live a perfect life for you and me. He labored on the cross when he died for our sins. But he did that 
so that God the Father could give us this true treasure that satisfies our soul, and that is the person, Jesus Christ himself. So don't set your heart and effort on things that cannot ultimately satisfy. Instead, receive and enjoy the gift that Jesus has earned for you, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.